is an audio version of Toy Models of Superposition by Elidge et al. Sections 1 and 2, an excerpt included in the core curriculum of the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. Section 1, Definitions and Motivation, Features, Directions and Superposition. In our work, we often think of neural networks as having features of the input represented as directions in activation space. This isn't a trivial claim. It isn't obvious what kind of structure we should expect neural network representations to have. When we say something like, word embeddings have a gender direction, or vision models have curved detector neurons, one is implicitly making strong claims about the structure of network representations. Despite this, we believe this kind of linear representation hypothesis is supported both by significant empirical findings and theoretical arguments. One might think of this as two separate properties, which we'll explore in more detail shortly. First, decomposability. Network representations can be described in terms of independently understandable features. And second, linearity. Features are represented by direction. If we hope to reverse-engineer neural networks, we need a property like decomposability. Decomposability is what allows us to reason about the model without fitting the whole thing in our heads. But it's not enough for things to be decomposable. We need to be able to access the decomposition somehow. In order to do this, we need to identify the individual features within a representation. In a linear representation, this corresponds to determining which directions in activation space correspond to which independent features of the input. Sometimes, identifying feature directions is very easy because features seem to correspond with neurons. For example, many neurons in the early layers of Inception V1 clearly correspond to features. For example, curved detector neurons. Audio note, there are footnotes in this post, but they're omitted from this recording for brevity. Why is it that we sometimes get this extremely helpful property, but in other cases don't? We hypothesize that there are really two countervailing forces driving this. First, privileged basis. Only some representations have a privileged basis which encourages features to align with basis directions, that is, to correspond to neurons. And second, superposition. Linear representations can represent more features than dimensions, using a strategy we call superposition. This can be seen as neural networks simulating larger networks. This pushes features away from corresponding to neurons. Superposition has been hypothesized in previous work, with four references here, and in some cases, assuming something like superposition has been shown to help find interpretable structure. However, we're not aware of feature superposition having been unambiguously demonstrated to occur in neural networks before. A paper titled Superposition of Many Models into One by Chung et al. from 2019 demonstrates a closely related phenomenon of model superposition. The goal of this paper is to change that, demonstrating superposition and exploring how it interacts with privileged bases. If superposition occurs in networks, it deeply influences what approaches to interpretability research make sense, so unambiguous demonstration seems important. The goal of this section will be to motivate these ideas and unpack them in detail. It's worth noting that many of the ideas in this section have close connections to ideas in other lines of interpretability research, especially disentanglement, neuroscience, distributed representations, population codes, etc., compressed sensing, and many other lines of work. This section will focus on articulating our perspective on the problem. We'll discuss these other lines of work in detail in a section related work. Audio note, you can check out that section in the original paper. Heading, 
empirical phenomena. When we talk about features in quotes and how they're represented, this is ultimately theory building around several observed empirical phenomena. Before describing how we conceptualise those results, we'll simply describe some of the major results motivating our thinking. Here's a list of five results. The first one, word embeddings. A famous result by Mikolov et al., referenced here, found that word embeddings appear to have directions which correspond to semantic properties, allowing for embedding arithmetic vectors, such as vector for king minus vector for man plus vector for woman equals vector for queen. But see another reference here, Linguistic Regularities in Sparse and Explicit Word Representations, by Levy and Goldberg, 2014. Next result, latent spaces. Similar vector arithmetic and interpretable direction results have also been found for generative adversarial networks. There's an example reference here. Next, interpretable neurons. There is a significant body of results finding neurons which appear to be interpretable in RNNs, in CNNs, and in GANs, references for each of those, activating in response to some understandable property. This work has faced some scepticism, two example references here. In response, several papers have aimed to give extremely detailed accounts of a few specific neurons, in the hope of dispositively establishing examples of neurons which truly detect some understandable property. Notably, Camerata et al., but also two more references here. Next, universality. Many analogous neurons responding to the same properties can be found across networks. Three example references here. And finally, polysemantic neurons. At the same time, there are also many neurons which appear to not respond to an interpretable property of the input, and in particular, many polysemantic neurons which appear to respond to unrelated mixtures of inputs. There's a reference here. That's the end of that list. As a result, we tend to think of neural network representations as being composed of features which are represented as directions. We'll unpack this idea in the following sections. Heading. What are features? Our use of the term feature in quotes is motivated by the interpretable properties of the input we observe neurons or word embedding directions responding to. There's a rich variety of such observed properties. In the context of vision, these are ranged from low-level neurons like curve detectors and high-low frequency detectors to more complex neurons like oriented dog head detectors or car detectors to extremely abstract neurons corresponding to famous people, emotions, geographic regions and more. In language models, researchers have found word embedding directions such as male-female or singular-plural direction, low-level neurons disambiguating words that occur in multiple languages, much more abstract neurons, and action-in-quotes output neurons that help produce certain words. Audio note, each of those examples had at least one reference attached to it. We'd like to use the term feature to encompass all these properties. But even with that motivation, it turns out to be quite challenging to create a satisfactory definition of a feature. Rather than offer a single definition we're confident about, we consider three potential working definitions. The first potential definition, features as arbitrary functions. One approach would be to define features as any function of the input, as in a paper titled Adversarial Examples Are Not Bugs, They Are Features, by Ilias et al. 2019. But this doesn't quite seem to fit our motivations. There's something special about these features that we're observing. They seem to, in some sense, be fundamental abstractions for reasoning about the data, with the same features forming reliably across models. Features also seem identifiable. Cat and car are two features, while cat plus car and cat minus car seem like mixtures of features, rather than features in some important sense. Next potential definition, features as interpretable properties. 
all the features we described are strikingly understandable to humans. One could try to use this for a definition. Features are the presence of human understandable concepts, in quotes, in the input. But it seems important to allow for features we might not understand. If AlphaFold discovers some important chemical structure for predicting protein folding, it might very well not be something we initially understand. And the third potential working definition? Neurons in sufficiently large models. A final approach is to define features as properties of the input which a sufficiently large neural network will reliably dedicate a neuron to representing. There's a footnote here with more detail that's been omitted for brevity. For example, curve detectors appear to reliably occur across sufficiently sophisticated vision models, and so are a feature. For interpretable properties, which we presently only observe in polysemantic neurons, the hope is that a sufficiently large model would dedicate a neuron to them. This definition is slightly circular, but avoids the issues with the earlier ones. That's the end of the definitions. We've written this paper with the final neurons insufficiently large models definition in mind, but we aren't overly attached to it, and we actually think it's probably important to not prematurely attach a definition. A famous book by Lakatos illustrates the importance of uncertainty about definitions and how important rethinking definitions often is in the context of research. Heading. Features as directions. As we've mentioned in previous sections, we generally think of features as being represented by directions. For example, in word embeddings, gender and royalty appear to correspond to directions, allowing arithmetic like V of king or vector of king minus V of man plus V of woman equals V of queen. And there's a reference here. Examples of interpretable neurons are also cases of features as directions, since the amount a neuron activates corresponds to a basis direction in the representation. Let's call a neural network representation linear if features correspond to directions in activation space. In a linear representation, each feature F subscript I, or Fi, has a corresponding representation direction W subscript I, or WI. The presence of multiple features, F subscript 1, or F1, F2, etc., activating with values x, f1, x, f2, etc., is represented by x, f1, w, f1, plus x, f2, w, f2. To be clear, the features being represented are almost certainly nonlinear functions of the input. It's only the map from features to activation vectors which is linear. Note that whether something is a linear representation depends on what you consider to be the features. We don't think it's a coincidence that neural networks empirically seem to have linear representations. Neural networks are built from linear functions interspersed with non-linearities. In some sense, the linear functions are the vast majority of the computation, for example, as measured in flops. Linear representations are the natural format for neural networks to represent information in. Concretely, there are three major benefits. First, Linear representations are the natural outputs of obvious algorithms a layer might implement. If one sets up a neuron to pattern match a particular weight template, it will fire more as a stimulus matches the template better and less as it matches it less well. Next, linear representations make features linearly accessible. A typical neural network layer is a linear function followed by a nonlinearity. If a feature in the previous layer is represented linearly, A neuron in the next layer can select it, in quotes, and have it consistently excite or inhibit that neuron. If a feature were represented non-linearly, the model would not be able to do this in a single step. And the third major benefit? Statistical efficiency. 
representing features as different directions may allow non-local generalization in models with linear transformations, such as the weights of neural nets, increasing their statistical efficiency relative to models which can only locally generalize. This view is especially advocated in some of Bengio's writing, see a reference example here, and there's also a blog post linked here with a more accessible argument. That's the end of that list of major benefits. It is possible to construct nonlinear representations and retrieve information from them if you use multiple layers, although even these examples can be seen as linear representations with more exotic features. We provide an example in the appendix. However, our intuition is that nonlinear representations are generally inefficient for neural networks. One might think that a linear representation can only store as many features as it has directions, but it turns out this isn't the case. We'll see that the phenomenon we call superposition will allow models to store more features, potentially many more features, in linear representations. For discussion on how this view of features squares with the conception of features as being multidimensional manifolds, see the appendix, What About Multidimensional Features? Heading, Privileged versus Non-Privileged Bases. Even if features are encoded as directions, a natural question to ask is, which directions? In some cases, it seems useful to consider the basis directions, but in others it doesn't. Why is this? When researchers study word embeddings, it doesn't make sense to analyse basis directions. There would be no reason to expect a basis dimension to be different from any other possible direction. One way to see this is to imagine applying some random linear transformation M to the word embedding, and apply M to the power of negative 1 to the following weights. This would produce an identical model where the basis dimensions are totally different, This is what we mean by a non-privileged basis. Of course, it's possible to study activations without a privileged basis. You just need to identify interesting directions to study somehow, such as creating a gender direction in a word embedding by taking the difference vector between man and woman. But many neural network layers are not like this. Often, something about the architecture makes the basis direction special, such as applying an activation function. This breaks the symmetry, in quotes, making those directions special potentially encouraging features to align with the basis dimensions. We call this a privileged basis, and call the basis directions neurons, in quotes. Often these neurons correspond to interpretable features. Here are a couple of diagrams. They each show a two-dimensional space with a pair of vectors at 90 degrees to each other. The first one is labelled, in a non-privileged basis, features can be embedded in any direction. There is no reason to expect basis dimensions to be special. For example, word embeddings, transform a residual stream. And we notice that this pair of orthogonal vectors are not aligned with the axes. They're oriented at some angle. The second diagram is labelled in a privileged basis. There is an incentive for features to align with basis dimensions. This doesn't necessarily mean they will. For example, convnet neurons and transformer MLPs. And in this diagram, we have the same orthogonal vectors, except this time they're aligned with the X and Y axes. From this perspective, it only makes sense to ask if a neuron is interpretable when it is in a privileged basis. In fact, we typically reserve the word neuron for basis directions, which are in a privileged basis. There's a link to a longer discussion here. Note that having a privileged basis doesn't guarantee that features will be basis-aligned. We'll see that they often aren't. But it's a minimal condition for the question to even make sense. Heading, the superposition hypothesis. Even when there is a privileged basis, it's often the case that neurons are polysemantic, responding to several unrelated features. One explanation for this is the superposition hypothesis, with three references here. 
Roughly, the idea of superposition is that neural networks, quote, want to represent more features than they have neurons, end quote. So they exploit a property of high-dimensional spaces to simulate a model with many more neurons. Here's another pair of diagrams. The first is labelled, polysemanticity is what we'd expect to observe if features were not aligned with a neuron, despite incentives to align with the privileged basis. And it's a diagram like before with a pair of perpendicular lines. But here we have little arrows marking some kind of pull or incentives towards aligning with the y-axis. The second diagram says, in the superposition hypothesis, features can't align with the basis because the model embeds more features than there are neurons. Polysemanticity is inevitable if this happens. And in this case, we have three lines. None of them are perpendicular to each other. The x and y axes have been highlighted, but we notice that none of the lines line up to them. Several results from mathematics suggest that something like this might be plausible. Here are two examples. Almost orthogonal vectors. Although it's only possible to have n orthogonal vectors in an n-dimensional space, it's possible to have exponential of n many almost orthogonal, less than epsilon cosine similarity, vectors in high-dimensional spaces. See the Johnson-Lindenstrauss lemma. The second example, compressed sensing. In general, if one projects a vector onto a lower-dimensional space, one can't reconstruct the original vector. However, this changes if one knows that the original vector is sparse. In this case, it's often possible to recover the original vector. That's the end of those two examples. Concretely, in the superposition hypothesis, features are represented as almost orthogonal directions in the vector space of neuron outputs. Since the features are only almost orthogonal, one feature activating looks like other features slightly activating. Tolerating this noise or interference comes at a cost. But for neural networks with highly sparse features, this cost may be outweighed by the benefit of being able to represent more features. Crucially, sparsity greatly reduces the costs, since sparse features are rarely active to interfere with each other, and non-linear activation functions create opportunities to filter out small amounts of noise. Here's another pair of diagrams, similar to the previous ones, except this time we have five vectors that are emanating from the origin and heading off like a star with equal angles between them. And it's pointed out here that these angles aren't 90 degrees, they're slightly less. The first caption reads, Even if only one sparse feature is active, using linear dot product projection on the superposition leads to interference which the model must tolerate or filter. And the diagram's pointing out that a 90 degree angle off either of two lines kind of corresponds with the line between them. Not exactly, but almost. And the second caption reads, If the features aren't as sparse as the superposition is expecting... Multiple present features can additively interfere, such that there are multiple possible nonlinear reconstructions of an activation vector. And this diagram shows that activation vector connecting to two different features that are both at nearly 90 degrees. One way to think of this is that a small neural network may be able to noisily simulate, in quotes, a sparse larger model. So here's a diagram showing layers of neurons in a hypothetical neural network with the connections between them. The first network has three layers, each of which has six neurons in it, and then there's a second network with only three neurons in each layer, again with three layers. The caption reads, Under the superposition hypothesis, the neural networks we observe are simulations of larger networks where every neuron is a disentangled feature. And that corresponds with the larger network illustrated here. These idealized neurons are projected onto the actual network as almost orthogonal vectors over the neurons. And we have these arrows, these curved arrows, pointing to the observed model, which has fewer neurons. And that's labelled, the network we observed is a low-dimensional projection of the larger network. From the perspective of individual neurons, this presents as polysemanticity. Back to the text. 
Although we've described superposition with respect to neurons, it can also occur in representations with an unprivileged basis, such as a word embedding. Superposition simply means that there are more features than dimensions. Heading. Summary. A hierarchy of feature properties. The ideas in this section might be thought of in terms of four progressively more strict properties that neural network representations might have. First, decomposability. Neural network activations which are decomposable can be decomposed into features, the meaning of which is not dependent on the value of other features. This property is ultimately the most important. See the role of decomposition in defeating the curse of dimensionality. Second, linearity. Features correspond to directions. Each feature, fi, has a corresponding representative direction, wi. The presence of multiple features, f1, f2, etc., activating with values xf1, xf2, etc., is represented by xf1, wf1, plus xf2, wf2, etc. Third, superposition versus non-superposition. A linear representation exhibits superposition if w to the power of t, w, is not invertible. If w to the power of t, w, is invertible, it does not exhibit superposition. Fourth and final property, basis aligned. A representation is basis aligned if all wi are one-hot basis vectors. A representation is partially basis aligned if all wi are sparse. This requires a privileged basis. That's the end of that list. The first two, decomposability and linearity, are properties we hypothesize to be widespread, while the latter, non-superposition and basis-aligned, are properties we believe only sometimes occur. Section heading, demonstrating superposition. If one takes the superposition hypothesis seriously, a natural first question is whether neural networks can actually noisily represent more features than they have neurons. If they can't, the superposition hypothesis may be comfortably dismissed. The intuition from linear models would be that this isn't possible. The best a linear model can do is to store the principal components. But we'll see that adding just a slight nonlinearity can make models behave in a radically different way. This will be our first demonstration of superposition. It will also be an object lesson in the complexity of even very simple neural networks. Heading, Experiment Setup. Our goal is to explore whether a neural network can project a high-dimensional vector x from the set r to the power of n into a lower-dimensional vector h from the set r to the power of m and then recover it. This experiment setup could also be viewed as an autoencoder reconstructing x. Here's a diagram like before with the two different neural networks illustrated, the first of which has six neurons in each of three layers and the second has three neurons in each of three layers. The middle layer's been highlighted here in the first one, it's labelled X part of the set R to the power of N. In the second, smaller network, it's labelled H part of the set R to the power of M. And the caption reads, Our first experiments will test the extent to which the idealised activations of an imagined larger model can be stored and recovered from a lower dimensional space. And there are two arrows here connecting the larger to the smaller neural network. The first arrow points from the larger to the smaller and is labelled W. The second points back from the smaller to the larger and is labelled W to the power of T, and those correspond with the words stored and recovered in the caption, via colour coding. Heading, the feature vector, X. We begin by describing the high-dimensional vector X, the activations of our idealised, disentangled larger model. We call each element XI, that's X subscript I, a feature, because we're imagining features to be perfectly aligned with neurons in the hypothetical larger model. In a vision model, 
This might be a Gabor filter, a curve detector, or a floppy ear detector. In a language model, it might correspond to a token referring to a specific famous person, or a clause being a particular kind of description. Since we don't have any ground truth for features, we need to create synthetic data for X which simulates any important properties we believe features have, from the perspective of modelling them. We make three major assumptions. First, feature sparsity. In the natural world, many features seem to be sparse in the sense that they only rarely occur. For example, in vision, most positions in an image don't contain a horizontal edge, or a curve, or a dog head. In language, most tokens don't refer to Martin Luther King, or aren't part of a clause describing music. This idea goes back to classical work on vision and the statistics of natural images. See, for example, Olshausen, 1997, the section Why Sparseness, reference here. For this reason, we will choose a sparse distribution for our features. Next assumption, more features than neurons. There are an enormous number of potentially useful features a model might represent. A vision model of sufficient generality might benefit from representing every species of plant and animal and every manufactured object which it might potentially see. A language model might benefit from representing each person who has ever been mentioned in writing. These are only scratching the surface of plausible features, but already there seem more than any model has neurons. In fact, large language models demonstrably do in fact know about people of very modest prominence. Presumably more such people than they have neurons. This point is a common argument in discussion of the plausibility of grandmother neurons in neuroscience, but seems even stronger for artificial neural networks. This imbalance between features and neurons in real models seems like it must be a central tension in neural network representations. And the third and final major assumption? Features vary in importance. Not all features are equally useful to a given task. Some can reduce the loss more than others. For an ImageNet model, where classifying different species of dogs is a central task, a floppy ear detector might be one of the most important features it can have. In contrast, another feature might only very slightly improve performance. For computational reasons, we won't focus on it in this article, but we often imagine an infinite number of features with importance asymptotically approaching zero. That's the end of the list of assumptions. Concretely, our synthesized data is defined as follows. The input vectors X are synthetic data intended to simulate the properties we believe the true underlying features of our task have. We consider each dimension X subscript I to be a feature in quotes. Each one has an associated sparsity SI and importance II. We let XI equal zero with probability SI, but is otherwise uniformly distributed between zero and one. The choice to have features distributed uniformly is arbitrary. An exponential or power law distribution would also be very natural. In practice, we focus on the case where all features have the same sparsity, SI equals S. Heading, the model, X to X prime. We will actually consider two models, which we motivate below. The first, linear model in quotes, is a well-understood baseline which does not exhibit superposition. The second, ReLU output model, in quotes, is a very simple model which does exhibit superposition. The two models vary only in the final activation function. And here's a series of equations representing the linear model and the ReLU output model. The first, the linear model, has h equals wx, and then x prime equals w to the power of t times h plus b, and then x prime equals w to the power of t wx plus b. And then the ReLU output model has the same first line, h equals wx, and then x prime is just ReLU of the term that we saw before in the linear model, 
and then x prime is also just ReLU of the second term that we saw before in the linear model. Why these models? The superposition hypothesis suggests that each feature in the higher dimensional model corresponds to a direction in the lower dimensional space. This means we can represent the down projection as a linear map h equals wx. Note that each column, w subscript i, corresponds to the direction in the lower dimensional space that represents a feature x subscript i. To recover the original vector, we'll use the transpose of the same matrix, w superscript t. This has the advantage of avoiding any ambiguity regarding what direction in the lower dimensional space really corresponds to a feature. It also seems relatively mathematically principled and empirically works. Recall that the transpose of the matrix W equals W to the power of negative 1 if W is orthonormal. Although W can't be literally orthonormal, our intuition from compressed sensing is that it will be almost orthonormal in the sense meant by Candice and Tao, reference here 27. We also add a bias. One motivation for this is that it allows the model to set features it doesn't represent to their expected value. But we'll see later that the ability to set a negative bias is important for superposition for a second set of reasons. Roughly, it allows models to discard small amounts of noise. The final step is whether to add an activation function. This turns out to be critical to whether superposition occurs. In a real neural network, when features are actually used by the model to do computation, there will be an activation function, so it seems principled to include one at the end. Heading, the loss. Our loss is weighted mean squared error weighted by the feature importances, i subscript i, described above. And there's a complex formula here expressing that that you can check out in the original post. Heading, basic results. Our first experiment will simply be to train a few ReLU output models with different sparsity levels and visualise the results. We'll also train a linear model. If optimised well enough, the linear model solution does not depend on sparsity level. The main question is how to visualise the results. The simplest way is to visualise W superscript T, W, a features by features matrix, and B, a feature length vector. Note that features are arranged from most important to least, so the results have a fairly nice structure. Here's an example of what this type of visualisation might look like. For a small model model, n equals 20, m equals 5, which behaves in the expected linear model-like way, only representing as many features as it has dimensions. Here's a pair of diagrams. It's a visualisation of W superscript T, W. It's captioned, It tends to be easier to visualise W superscript T, W than W. Here we see that W superscript T, W, is an identity matrix for the most important features and zero for less important ones. And correspondingly we see that all of the ones seem to be lined up on a diagonal and there are zeros everywhere else in the matrix. We also have a second diagram here, it's a one-dimensional matrix, or a bar, a column, labelled B, and the lower half, and a little bit more, is full, with ones, and then the rest is empty, with zeros. It's captioned, we can also look at the bias, B. The bias is zero for features learned to pass through, and the expected value, a positive number, for others. The text goes on. But the thing we really care about in this hypothesised phenomenon of superposition, does the model represent extra features, by storing them non-orthogonally? Is there a way to get at it more explicitly? Well, one question is just how many features the model learns to represent. For any feature, whether or not it is represented is determined by the norm of its embedding vector, represented here by W subscript I enclosed in two sets of pipes. We'd also like to understand whether a given feature shares its dimension with other features. 
For this, we calculate a complex formula that I won't describe here, projecting all other features onto the direction vector of W subscript I. It will be zero if the feature is orthogonal to other features, labelled in dark blue in the diagram below. On the other hand, values greater than or equal to 1 mean that there is some group of other features which can activate W subscript I as strongly as feature I itself. We can visualise the model we looked at previously this way. So here's another diagram. It has that term for the norm of its embedding vector at the top as a label. And then features with an arrow pointing down from the top of this column. And then we have zeros marked for the first few entries and then grey or empty after that. The caption reads, we want to understand which features the model chooses to represent in its hidden representation and whether they're orthogonal to each other. To do this, we visualise the norm of each feature's direction vector. This will be around 1 if a feature is fully represented and 0 if it is not. For each feature, we also use colour to visualise whether it is orthogonal to other features, that is, in superposition. This model simply dedicates one dimension to each of the most important features, representing them orthogonally. The text goes on. Now that we have a way to visualise models, we can start to actually do experiments. We'll start by considering models with only a few features, n equals 20, m equals 5, i subscript i equals 0.7 to the power of i. This will make it easy to visually see what happens. We consider a linear model and several ReLU output models trained on data with different feature sparsity levels. So the linear model is on the very far left of this diagram. It consists of two parts, W superscript T, W, and B in the top part, and then the norm of each feature's direction vector in the second part of the diagram. Audio note, this is a very complex diagram that it would be good for you to check out in the original post. I'll read out the captions. Linear models learn the top M features. 1 minus S equals 0.001 as shown, but others are similar. And then in the ReLU output model section, we have models that are progressively more sparse. In the dense regime, ReLU output models also learn the top M features. So this maps pretty closely to what we saw in the linear model. Then, as sparsity increases, superposition allows models to represent more features. The most important features are initially untouched. This early superposition is organised in antipodal pairs. More on this later. In the high-sparsity regime, models put all features in superposition and continue packing more. Note that at this point we begin to see positive interference and negative biases. We'll talk about this more later. As our standard intuitions would expect, the linear model always learns the top M most important features, analogous to learning the top principal components. The ReLU output model behaves the same on dense features, 1 minus S equals 1. But as sparsity increases, we see superposition emerge. The model represents more features by having them not be orthogonal to each other. It starts with less important features and gradually affects the most important ones. Initially, this involves arranging them in antipodal pairs, where one feature's representation vector is exactly the negative of the others. But we observe it gradually transition to other geometric structures as it represents more features. We'll discuss feature geometry in a later section, the geometry of superposition. The results are qualitatively similar for models with more features and hidden dimensions. For example, if we consider a model with m equals 20 hidden dimensions and n equals 80 features, with importance increased to i subscript i equals 0.9 to the power of i to account for having more features, we observe essentially a rescaled version of the visualisation above. Audio note, once again we have a similar visualisation showing the linear model and the ReLU output model, and as noted in the text, it shows a very similar pattern, except that the matrices being looked at are larger. Heading, Mathematical Understanding. 
In the previous section, we observed a surprising empirical result. Adding a ReLU to the output of our model allowed a radically different solution, superposition, which doesn't occur in linear models. The model where it occurs is still quite mathematically simple. Can we analytically understand why superposition is occurring? And for that matter, why does adding a single nonlinearity make things so different from the linear model case? It turns out that we can get a fairly satisfying answer, revealing that our model is governed by balancing two competing forces, feature benefit and interference, which will be a useful intuition going forwards. We'll also discover a connection to the famous Thomson problem in chemistry. Let's start with the linear case. This is well understood by prior work. If one wants to understand why linear models don't exhibit superposition, the easy answer is to observe that linear models essentially perform PCA. But this isn't fully satisfying. If we set aside all our knowledge and intuition about linear functions for a moment, why exactly is it that superposition can't occur? A deeper understanding can come from the results of Sachs et al., referenced here, who study the learning dynamics of linear neural networks, that is, neural networks without activation functions. Such models are ultimately linear functions, but because they are the composition of multiple linear functions, the dynamics are potentially quite complex. The punchline of their paper reveals that neural network weights can be thought of as optimising a simple closed-form solution. We can tweak their problem to be a bit more similar to our linear case, revealing the following equation. Here's an equation with two parts. You can check out the mathematical notation in the original text, it's a little too complex to follow in audio form, but the two parts of the equation, which are separated by an addition operator, or a plus sign, are labelled feature benefit is the value a model attains from representing a feature. In a real neural network, this would be analogous to the potential of a feature to improve predictions if represented accurately. In the second half of the equation, after the plus sign, is labelled interference between x subscript i and x subscript j occurs when two features are embedded non-orthogonally and, as a result, affect each other's predictions. This prevents superposition in linear models. The results from the Sachs paper reveal that there are fundamentally two competing forces which control learning dynamics in the considered model. Firstly, the model can attain a better loss by representing more features. We've labelled this feature benefit. But it also gets a worse loss if it represents more than it can fit orthogonally due to interference in quotes between features. In fact, this makes it never worthwhile for the linear model to represent more features than it has dimensions. Can we achieve a similar kind of understanding for the ReLU output model? Concretely, we'd like to understand the loss, which equals a complex integral here that you can check out in the original post, where x is distributed such that x subscript i equals zero with probability s. The integral over x decomposes into a term for each sparsity pattern according to the binomial expansion of 1 minus s plus s, all to the power of n. We can group terms of the sparsity together, rewriting the loss as L equals a complex equation that you can check out in the original post, with each L subscript k corresponding to the loss when the output is a k-sparse vector. Note that as s approaches 1, L subscript 1 and L subscript 0 dominate. The L subscript 0 term corresponding to the loss on a zero vector it's just a penalty on positive biases, here expressed by the sum over different values of i for ReLU b subscript i squared. So the interesting term is L subscript 1, the loss on 1 sparse vectors. And here's another series of equations. It says if we focus on the case x subscript i equals 1, we get something which looks even more analogous to the linear case. And this shows a variation of the equation and interval shown before, which is similar in structure to the equation from before, and again is labelled with feature benefit 
and then interference on the other side of the addition operator. Feature benefit is similar to before. Note that ReLU never makes things worse, and that the bias can help when the model doesn't represent a feature by taking on the expected value. And interference is similar to before, but ReLU means that negative interference, or interference where a negative bias pushes it below zero, is free in the one-sparse case. The text goes on. This new equation is vaguely similar to the famous Thomson problem in chemistry. In particular, if we assume uniform importance, and that there are a fixed number of features, with the norm of each feature's direction vector equal to 1, and the rest have the norm of the feature's direction vector equal to 0, and that B subscript I equals 0, then the feature benefit term is constant and the interference term becomes a generalised Thomson problem. We're just packing points on the surface of the sphere with a slightly unusual energy function. We'll see this can be a productive analogy when we resume our empirical investigation in the following sections. Another interesting property is that ReLU makes negative interference free in the one-sparse case. This explains why the solutions we've seen prefer to only have negative interference when possible. Further, using a negative bias can convert small positive interferences into essentially being negative interferences. What about the terms corresponding to less sparse vectors? We leave explicitly writing these out to the reader. But the main idea is that there are multiple compounding interferences, and the active features can experience interference. In a later section, we'll see that features often organise themselves into sparse interference graphs, such that only a small number of features interfere with another feature. It's interesting to note that this reduces the probability of compounding interference and makes the one-sparse loss term more important relative to others. This was an audio version of Toy Models of Superposition, Sections 1 and 2, by Nelson Elledge et al., published on September 14, 2022. It's included as part of the core curriculum for the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.